Hello and welcome to another issue of Pipettes and Politics. This is another COVID-19 special edition. My name is Ben Korb. I'm the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And today I am joined by Dr. Regina Richards. Dr. Richards is the Director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the School of Medicine at Colorado University. Uh, Dr. Richards, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really wanted to have you and have a discussion as we look at COVID-19. Um, actually, before I do that, let me just ask, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How are you managing through kind of this really unique time that we're dealing with? I, I, should, I should just ask about you first. So how are, we, how are you doing? I appreciate you asking that question. So the, um, how am I doing? I am doing well. I feel very blessed and fortunate. And my family as well, um, those that I love and know closely. Uh, my colleagues are well. Um, in the midst of all of this change, um, I've not directly, though indirectly have, but not directly had any family members or close loved ones um, lost to COVID-19. So for that, I'm grateful. Absolutely. Um, it is a very uncertain time, and I think about our students, I think about our community, I think about our institutions, and our nation and our world globally. And uh, people are suffering, suffering more uh, than they did before COVID-19, and we know that universal suffering is very real and has been historical. But uh, during this pandemic, it is suffering at a different level. And um, it is a health crisis, as we all know. So I want to start by asking you just about your position. What does the director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion do at, um, at the School of Medicine there? We have the good fortune of being able to um, work across the spectrum of medical education. That is um, helping to develop pipeline programs, helping with admission and recruitment to the medical school, um, being able to help with um, designing programs and some guidelines and policies as it relates to um, diversity and inclusion, medical education, um, being able to integrate with the community to hear from the community of what the needs are. Um, how can the University of Colorado School of Medicine be a partner in the efforts of the community and how the community can partner with uh, the university as well, be able to um, work across with faculty affairs and think about and um, institute practices, best practices, evidence-based practices as it relates to recruitment and retention of um, underrepresented minorities in the medical education field. So I'm blessed enough where um, I this director position allows me to be part of and help to establish and um, hold accountable um, departments um, and partners for um, inclusion and equity related work as it relates to um, health, as it relates to educational access, as it relates to health equity. I know that was very broad, but we only have so much time, so I right. can give you those specifics right. if I need to. I want to say also that we are uh, very much in partnership with our affiliate organizations, teaching hospitals that are on our campus and located within our reach. And so it allows us some opportunity to work with those institutions as well to develop practices um, as it relates to health equity. Great. 
I think as it relates to the COVID um, and and the, the global mm-hmm. pandemic that we're dealing with, I think one of the things that I've found in conducting a lot of these interviews is in a crisis, um, those who those who do great work and and kind of heroes really shine. Um, but also um, those areas and the inequities and problem areas that were never really been addressed, those get highlighted and become just the, the problem areas that, that have always existed become even more acute. And so I'm wondering what mm-hmm. perspective you're finding when it comes to diversity, inclusion, health disparities, um, concerns about whether you know people of different races are, are having different outcomes and why that, you know, the systemic reasons on why that might be. What is the perspective that you have um, as it relates to health disparities in, in COVID specifically? So good questions. Um, the work that I have said, so let me just preface by saying I'm a director of the School of Medicine Office of Diversity and Inclusion. I'm assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine, but I am a community social worker by trade. I say that oftentimes after I say my name. And what does that really mean? It means that I navigate this world and I look at um, and I engage in practices that really look at social justice issues. Um, my work has centered around um, what we know as the social determinants of health. There's been research that um, has supported the um, the issues related to unequal access for vulnerable populations as it relates to six domains. Those are the social determinants of health. Okay. And so those domains are health, education, um, housing. Uh, food security, income, and safety. So what does that translate into people's everyday lives? So the World Health Organization, WHO as we know them, define these as conditions where people, in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. And these circumstances are shaped by the distribution of money, power, resources at both the globe, at, at global, national, and local levels. So we know that historically these issues have, uh, these systemic issues have been in place. This has played itself out in unequal treatment, race, racism, as it relates to vulnerable populations. Um, We're going to talk specifically about access to quality medical care and education as um, as it relates to these determinants of health. So people who are poor and live in poor social and economic health conditions experience worse health overall in all societies. So if you then layer that with a pandemic, then you have vulnerable populations and for the purpose of this, I'm going to name those populations. Okay. African-American Black, Hispanic Latino, Latinx, American Indian, Indigenous population, uh, Pacific Islanders, and in some communities, depending on the region, depending on the, the communities, it could include um, also uh, Vietnamese populations. It can include rural people coming from rural communities as well. Okay. So 
So what that really means is that these individuals are already experiencing the worst health conditions in society because right. of issues of, again, lack of access, poor economic situations, multi-generational poverty, uh, multi-generational housing, um, lack of access to food because of food deserts. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to these issues of money, power, and privilege. These like the, these so, are like I'm sorry, these are like long-standing systemic issues. Absolutely. I mean, I can t- we can take it back to um, the 1400s. Sure. And we can bring that up then to the writing of the the Constitution. We, the people, African Americans, Chinese individuals, were not even uh, considered people when that was written. They were noted in our history as property. Right. So that there's already laws and policies that have set up exclusion of certain populations in what has been viewed as America. And so, in in I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go continue. Sorry. Indigenous populations, American uh, Indians, the reservations, not getting access access to uh, quality health conditions. Um, and so those are some of these, um, the redlining processes that happened in America before the uh, Fair Housing Act of 19, I believe, 69, um, where communities of color, African-American people were, could only get mortgages in certain areas and those areas were industrial areas. So therefore, asthma was very high. Okay. And those populations. Sure. Um, so it is those social conditions, it is those policies and practices that were built um, to um, unequally, uh, disproportionately affect certain populations. And, and let's talk about how that relates to how we as a nation are handling our pandemic response. And, and so, for, so let me, I'll, I'll, let me throw out an example and you can kind of comment and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm off base, but um, traditionally underserved and minority populations who are, let's say working, you know, they're underemployed. So they're working two or three part-time jobs. None of those jobs necessarily offer um, access to healthcare or affordable access to healthcare. Um, and they live in a, in a food desert, so they don't have immediate access to, to groceries and to, to fresh food and, um, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables and, and that sort of thing. And so then we end up in a pandemic where access to health care is critically important, um, where a lot of offices and, and work environments are closed. And so uh, the paychecks aren't rolling in um, or aren't coming at all. Um, and a food shortage has made it, it, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to get a paycheck, to pay for food, to find the food, to get to the doctor if you're sick, or if you're sick, maybe you don't want to go to the doctor or you want to try to pick up an extra shift so that you can afford your next meal, right? All of these things kind of compound, um, and really just exponentially make the situation more difficult for, um, uh, an, an underserved population during this pandemic. Is that is that a, an accurate kind of encapsulation of things? That is definitely an accurate encapsulation of it. I will add that, first of all, I want to be sure that we are mindful to know that mitigation works. We know that. We know that in this time of 
uh, uncertainty, COVID-19, this pandemic, that there had to be certain measures put into place so that there could start being some sort of mitigation processes um, to help slow down this disease. Social isolation, however, means different things for different people. And um, when these practices and policies are put in place, it's really imperative to bring the community voice forward. Um, and I, when I say community voice, I mean individuals whose lives are directly impacted from lack of access to some of these other uh, systems. So um, you're absolutely right. Um, if you tell people to socially isolate it, that they cannot go out um, and work their job, well, if service work is what you do or you are underemployed, then you are, that means that your family doesn't eat. Right. And right. for anyone, I would say, you know, the achievement of having a good steady job to be able to take care of your family is um, both social and cultural that gives you a sense of pride. And if you take that away from families, there may not be any other resources. So therefore, you feel helpless that you're not doing and providing the basic needs for your family. So absolutely positively, social isolation means a lot of things to a lot of people. If you have families who, single mother potentially, maybe, uh, mother and father in the family, they are in those categories of uh, being unemployed or underemployed, um, or have been doing well with their family, um, and meeting to meet the family's basic needs, but then have to socially isolate, um, have been working to kind of keep those essential jobs going, um, then what does that mean to the oldest person in the family, the oldest child in the family? Do they then have to step up and take on responsibilities because now students cannot go to school? So therefore, someone in the house has to manage the little one in their school. So um, it, it has so many multiple layers. Um, when I think about the downstream effect of COVID-19, things that we haven't even seen yet. And we know that there are disparities as it relates to um, children of color, African-American, Latinx, uh, American Indian population um, accessing higher education. Right. So because of this pandemic, what is that going to mean? It is going to mean higher numbers of disparity, less individuals able to access education, be qualified for education because they've had to step in. And in, in in vulnerable populations, certain cultures, when your family is down, then it is the next person, the next generation that helps. Right. When you're talking about um, people not accessing healthcare, there's been a longstanding history in America. Um, about certain populations fearing the healthcare system. Um, if you are unemployed, underemployed, um, and no one is messaging to you that the Medicare, <clears throat> Medicaid rates um, have changed so that you can access the physician, then you're not going to know it's okay to go to the doctor because the messaging right. we have gotten. So many messages about this pandemic that for those of us that are, we consider, you know, have the privilege of higher education, we have to step back from it and dissect it. 
Right. Imagine right. individuals who don't have, who have not had the access that we have, trying to digest all of this information. Then you layer that with some historical aspects of fear of access to medical professionals. Then you layer that with um, increased burdens financially. And then you layer that with concern about your community, but more specifically about your family. Then you're not processing this information because it doesn't. It, it, first of all, the messaging comes from someone that maybe looks different to, from you. And secondly, you've got that fear. And thirdly, it's too much because all you want to do is feed your family, make sure the basic needs are taken care of, right. and also uh, help other family members when there is an ordinance in place to say that you are supposed to do social distancing. So where are the messages? Where are the people? Who are the individuals that need to message this differently to the various different populations? Not because of their inability to process the information, because this is very overwhelming to us all, and we all need help understanding how to prioritize based on the messages and the information that we're getting. Right. What, and what I hear is, layer upon layer upon layer of challenge that is put on to this community. Um, what's the, how do we find, um, how do we find policies that can work, that can help now, right? Because we're not going to be able to, you know, as much as everybody would, as much as we would love to immediately solve these problems. Um, Mm-hmm. This is these are systemic issues that need really mm-hmm. deep dives and lots of policy mm-hmm. changes. But what are some mm-hmm. things that that policymakers, um, that researchers can be doing right now um, that can at least alleviate some of the burden, particularly that this pandemic is placing on on this community? So the National Medical Association, in um, partnership with the Rainbow Push Coalition released last week, Dr. Leon McDougall, who is the chair of that, uh, the National Medical Association and the chair of, I'm sorry, the um, vice president of diversity and inclusion at The Ohio State University. They just released a joint statement uh, on the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, a public health manifesto. Okay. And I feel personally that it is a real concentrated effort to say, what is the public health strategy that really could help policymakers, community leaders address some of these longstanding issues? Um, There are 12 areas that I'll just briefly hit on. The first was prevention. It's messaging about shelter in place, but it's also not just in place at home, but in place uh, in the the worship place. In communities of color, I'll speak specifically about African-American communities. Um, Church is where we go to get information. Church is where we go to get the strength and the encouragement that is needed in the face, uh, just to be able to, to live each and every day, but certainly in the face of Christ. Right. It really is like a community center, more than just a a religious experience, right? It is a trusted community center. And clergy are trusted members 
of that. And so to hear that we can't worship at um, worship places and that we have to now do it online, that message just needs to be deployed in a different way. It's not because people are not capable of understanding, but it is understanding what it means and in layman's terms, you know, shelter in place. When you leave, if you have to go out, then, you know, stand back, give six feet uh, between other people, you know, avoid the mass gatherings. You may have been, I know individuals who uh, have lost, lost loved ones um, in communities of color and long-standing pillars, people that are in their 90s that passed away, whether it's related to COVID-19 or not, um, and not being able to gather in a church facility to give that individual a proper home going, and things have to be done at the graveside. That impacts community in a different way. So it's how those messages of prevention really being delivered. Okay. The second one is data. Um, you know, requiring that all state and local health departments and centers for disease control are required to collect and publicly report testing, hospitalization data, outcome data, uh, and stratify it by demographic. We are now just receiving information, and I know that there has been an overload in the system in many, many ways, but it's imperative to get out the the race-based information um, at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, Dr. Shanta Zimmer, who is our Senior Associate Dean of Medical Education, as well as our Senior Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, um, worked with a group of medical students, rallied a group of medical students, and began to look at who is getting access to the hospital. What's the hospitalization rate as it relates to race and ethnicity data. And so that was something that was initiated because that's the work that we do. We need to be educated. We need the data to be informed. And so Boston Children's Hospital, uh, based on information that was provided by the U.S. Census and State Departments of Public Health, released in a, uh, a report recently that shows the disproportionate rates of um, blacks, as it relates to the per percentage of state population of blacks, okay. and then the percentage of state populations of COVID-19 deaths. And though the population of blacks in the state is low, the, the percentage of blacks being affected by COVID-19 is astronomical. Sure. So that's data okay. to help us understand. Uh, zip code data. What, what is it? We need to understand what are the health, uh, excuse me, what are the occupation of the individuals who are being affected. So then that potentially there could be targeted interventions of messaging and testing okay. that could get to those communities first. We're talking about the next one is screening. The screening question to determine, um, you know, high risk groups. Um, who are coming from vulnerable populations. Sure. Um, access to testing stations. Access to information about walk-up capabilities um, because everybody may not have a car. Right, um, sure. And so it's understanding those dynamics. Who's getting the information first? And so therefore, does that contribute to the disproportionate numbers that we are seeing? 
um, oftentimes in communities of color, especially if these are lower uh, individuals with lower socioeconomic backgrounds, no one's talking about DNR, do not resuscitate orders. Um, how, who needs to deliver that message to the community and have an understanding about what that means and how that can be done and resources to have that done? Um, how can uh, protection? Uh, go ahead. If you don't mind, the, you know, one of the things you brought up several times, you know, it's there's so much involved in delivering the message from the right messenger. That's, you know, I've, I've heard that as a theme of some of the things that you've said. How can we do that? How can, um, how can scientists do a better job of delivering that message, um, you know, in, in the right way so that everyone who needs to hear it is hearing it and not just assuming that um, because we said it, it's getting out there? So I think that it's important to have community voice. Tar so do targeted outreach. What does targeted outreach mean? So if you are telling people to wash their hands, but they are on a Navajo Nation and there's no running water, what right. are the alternatives? Sure. Let's start there. Um, if you are saying you need to be socially, uh, so so therefore it needs to be someone working with uh, the community, someone from our institutions working directly with a community member to say, how do we target the messages so that individuals understand and trust what we're saying. That's such a really, I just want to underscore how good of a point that is because, uh, you know, from a scientific standpoint, we've heard so much talking about how simple soap and water and washing your hands for 20 seconds is so effective to stopping the spread of the virus um, just because of the, you know, the, the makeup of the virus itself and, and how soap just kind of just disintegrates it. But if you are a population like the Navajo population in which 30% of that population doesn't have access to running water, how do you wash your hands, right? It's, it's not even a, you know, that's not even an option. So what are the alternatives to it? That's a really great point to be thinking about. Um, what about our homeless population that doesn't have access to running water? Sure. How are they washing their hands? Right, because clinics are, because they're, they're right, and places that they go are closed. So, you know, some of the, some of the typical places that they may want to be to be getting a respite and to be getting a help either... Oh don't have room or, or are closed because of the virus. Exactly. So. so I think, you know, going back to the broader sense is that you wouldn't know. There, are, I have such regard for everybody who's doing the work. I appreciate all. We appreciate the frontliners. We appreciate the housekeepers that are keeping things clean and sanitary. When we go to the grocery store, there are individuals there that are wiping buggies down and handing those to us. Yep. That's a huge piece. But when you are a scientist and you think in terms of science lingo, then how do you know how to have these direct conversations and to be thinking broadly outside of the world that is normal for you? You can't do that unless you have community voice at the table. We, so what I'm hoping that will happen for this, from the, all of this, is that there is now a heightened sense of um, understanding or at least the, putting a face to health disparities. No, right. And yeah. It, it looks, the face of poverty looks different. Right. Well, but I'm hoping that throughout this process that we get voices to the community that can sit and help us to increase our mitigation 
practices that will be able to impact people from the grassroots perspective. I am working with some colleagues here um, in town and uh, with uh, the School of Medicine to do some targeted outreach to the Black community. And so we're meeting next week to get individuals on board to, number one, ask the question to the, um, from the community, what do you need to know? And then also to providers to say, when we are out talking to individuals, and we will have all of our social distancing and other practices in place while we do this, right. but ask the question from the providers. What do you want to hear? What is it that you need to know? Sure. Because until we are able to gather more information about the why, why it's spreading to these communities, we know about the social determinants of health. So that is part of our voice. But we also need to collect some other information so that we'll know how to target our mitigation practices that will be able to reach broader audiences based on uh, race, ethnicity, social, uh, social, um, cultural issues. I also want to make sure that I am including in vulnerable populations our um, disability community okay. or, and uh, individuals who have mental health issues. Because you may not see it. It's just like this virus. You may not see it. But those, are, those particular things aren't happening. So you need to get the voice at the table when you're doing policies, practices, um, developing practices and guidelines to help us understand what all of this means, how can we communicate the urgency of it. I was at the post office yesterday. No disrespect to the post office. I appreciate those workers every day. And um, one of the ladies in front of me asked the clerk behind the desk, do you have gloves that you work with? And that individual said, um, I have them, but I'm not going to buy into the hype of the fear. Okay. And I know that that was a very real experience for that individual, and I did not want to embarrass them or put them on the spot. Well, what I did say is I heard you say that you're not wearing your glove because you don't want to buy into the fear. But I just wanted you to know that the, what we've seen thus far is that this is an invisible. It's an invisible virus, right. and it could be everywhere. Right, right. Protect yourself. Right. You protect yourself, you can protect your family. If you protect your family, you can protect your community. Right. And, and then we can protect globally. You know, and maybe hearing that message from you, um, you know, as opposed to someone who seems so out of touch and so out of reach mm -hmm. with the community, you know, maybe that, maybe, you know, you delivering that message may have a different impact on that, on that postal worker than, you know, than, you know, seeing it on the news or seeing whoever you're seeing behind a podium speaking. I hope so. So do I. Well, what I, what I believe for sure is we will have a new normal. I say to people all the time, like 9-11 changed the way we travel. Right. COVID-19 is going to change how we live. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think. And but we need to, we got to get the messaging out to the right people. We have to be targeted. Right. And, and I think you've helped, um, you've helped to begin that discussion here um, w with us on, on pipettes and politics. And, and I appreciate that. And, uh, and I appreciate your time.
Um, I'm going to cut off the conversation here for, um, but I think this is the beginning of, I think, a, a, a greater conversation that I hope um, I hope I can have you back and I hope we can talk more, not just about how this relates to, to COVID, um, but how scientists and researchers can do a better job reaching out to communities, um, minority number, underrepresented communities, um, and work on the finding those community messaging partners um, to help to get those things across. So, um, Dr. Richards, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Ben, I appreciate you asking Dr. Flores, and I appreciate her recommending me, and I thought this is an opportunity to at least bring some information from just a grassroots perspective. So I really appreciate what you are doing. Keep doing what you are doing, and I am here as a resource anytime, place. So please don't hesitate to reach out. You are uh, never bothering me because we are all busy. Well, I will, <laughs> I, I will make you regret that offer, but thank you so much for your time. <laughs> so far, uh, so you would have to really bring it for me to do that. So I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. That's Stay been well. you too. That's been Regina Richards, the director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. You can find her on Twitter at Regina D. Richards. And we'll also have a link to her Twitter and the report that we discussed earlier um, in the SoundCloud uh, link to this podcast. This has been a special uh, COVID-19 special edition of Pipettes and Politics. Thanks for listening.